please stand with me and uh, follow along either in your in your Bibles or up on the screens. Pastor Wayne will be um, preaching through uh, John chapter 18, verse 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kindred Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They asked him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that, had, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this text, Lord. We're so thankful for the, the truth that you've revealed to us. And we pray this morning that you would speak through Pastor Wayne, Lord, that he would uh, be able to uh, proclaim this truth and, and uh, help us to understand it uh, even better. Lord, please give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and, and soften our hearts, Lord, that we may receive your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you well know, we have four eyewitness accounts of the Lord's fulfillment of all that he promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled what he promised in the Old Testament through the incarnate arrival of Christ. And John said, you know, to be honest with you, we can't record everything we saw or heard. Now, Matthew has done that for his fellow Jews. Mark has done that for the Romans. Luke has done that for the Greeks, for the Gentiles. And each one of them emphasized significant events and truths for the specific group to whom they wrote. John now, several years later, provides an, addition, provides an additional gospel. He provides additional details. He doesn't need to repeat what Matthew, Mark, Luke have added. He's giving us more things that they did not necessarily include. And so he tells us that on the night before Christ is crucified, here is what happened. You have to go all the way back to the 13th chapter where Christ is observing Passover with the disciples. And he teaches them how he wants them to lead through serving others. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. And he even gets down and washes their feet. He tells them, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. He tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What's getting ready to happen, what's getting ready to occur, just know this. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare it, I'll come again to receive you, that where I am, there you will be also. So don't be afraid. And then he tells them, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You realize that? Because I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you're not going to be able to do anything very well. It is through me that you are going to bear much fruit. And when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, the Spirit of truth, who's going to lead you into all truth. And so he's, he's been giving them these final instructions from John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then he prays for them in John 17. And so in chapter 18, John opens with, when he had spoken these words. Those are the words that he had spoken. These are the instructions. This is the prayer that he has given for them. And when he had done that, he goes with his disciples out of Jerusalem across the brook Kidron. Now, in this picture that I've given you this morning, you can see Jerusalem is sitting on a hill. It's called Mount Moriah. There is a brook down below. Can you see that? 
I'm sitting in the Garden of Gethsemane that is up the Mount of Olives on the other side of the brook. The temple in that day, which was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, the temple of that day was in the general vicinity of where you can kind of see the, the Dome of the Rock. That's, a, that's actually a Muslim mosque today. The wall that you see there is not the wall that was in the days of Christ. Uh, those were destroyed also. And uh, the wall you see there was built by Suleiman uh, back in the 1500s. But it's in the approximate area. If you look at where that mosque is located, and just imagine that's the temple or the area where the temple was. All of these people have come in from all over Israel. Thousands and thousands from up north in Galilee have come to observe Passover. And historical records tell us that there was somewhere around 250,000 lambs that were slain in observance of Passover. That's a lot of lambs. And where's all that blood going to go? Well, in the temple, they had a channel that ran from the temple out in, outside the gate, uh, outside the wall, down into this brook called Brook Kidron. And then you would go across that brook and you could go up the mount into the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. When Christ comes out of Jerusalem in John 18, he goes across that brook Kidron. It's going to be flowing. It's dry much of the year, but it's going to be flowing crimson red with all the blood from those lambs. And when he passes over that brook, he realizes, he already knows, I am the Passover lamb. I am the Passover lamb in fulfillment of this Old Testament picture the Lord had given for 1,500 years. Remember when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, out of bondage to Pharaoh? And he says, I will bring them out beneath the blood of the lamb. You would, you, you would uh, observe Passover and you, by spreading the blood above your doorpost. And when the death angel came and all those firstborn died in Egypt, those that were covered by the blood were spared. It was, they were passed over. Well, Christ is passing over the brook Kidron where the blood of those Passover lambs is flowing. And he knows that he has come to deliver us as the Passover lamb, to deliver us from our bondage of sin. And so he makes his way to this familiar place of prayer. And when he gets there, he is going to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Luke tells us that, chapter 22. The medical condition is called hematidrosis. It's a, it's a situation whereby those, those tiny blood vessels surrounding your sweat glands, they dilate to the point that they rupture, causing blood to infuse into the sweat glands. Knowing, knowing what it's going to take to satisfy the just wrath of a holy God. In order to make atonement for sinners, they're going to be born again in him by grace through faith. Create such anguish for Christ in his incarnate condition that Matthew says his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now this garden to which Christ comes is the same place where King David a thousand years earlier Remember when the Lord gave King David that promise? He says, from your descendant is going to come the Messiah who will reign forever and forever, right? King David comes there and he weeps. He weeps over the rebellious behavior of men who are seeking to dethrone him. This is where Solomon, David's son, will actually build altars to Chemosh, the detestable god of the Moabites. He'll build altars to Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. Why? Because he took foreign wives who brought idolatry into Israel. And this is the whole reason the kingdom is going to split into the north and the south. It's on this mount is where all this takes place. 
This is a mount where Christ comes frequently because it's actually on the way from Jerusalem to Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. This is where his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And so whenever he goes to visit them or he's going to visit them on his way to Jerusalem, this is the area that he passes over, the Mount of Olives. He goes through Gethsemane, which means oil press. This is where it's located. This is the mount that Christ makes, makes his triumphal entry just four days earlier. Four days earlier, he comes from Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's uh, home where he has raised Lazarus from the dead and he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the area that they have, have surrounded with thousands and thousands and thousands of Galileans shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's where he comes this very week and looks out over Jerusalem and weeps for them as people without a shepherd. It's where he comes earlier with the disciples. You can read about it in Matthew 24 and 25. Earlier that week, he comes there with them and explains that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And now, same week, this is his third and final visit. He comes to the mount where he warns his disciples that they will scatter when the shepherd is struck. This is where Peter on this night will say, not me, Lord. Oh, no. Not me. All the others, my Lord, but not me. And Christ will say, Peter, this night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter says, that is not true. I'll die for you. I'll die for you. And the other disciples chime in. All of them are very self-confident. We will not scatter. We, it will not happen. We will stay with you. We will die with you. This is the mount. This is the night. When Christ goes there. And he will tell them to watch and to pray. It is late. It's in the wee hours of Friday morning. It's been a long day. And so Christ tells them to watch and pray, and he goes a few feet from them, and he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. If there's no other way for fallen men to be reconciled with you because of your holy character, then thy will be done. But being in the flesh, I really don't want to go through with this. I know what your holy character demands. If it is possible, let this cup pass. But if there is no other way for fallen men to be reconciled to you so that your amazing grace through faith in me can bring them into reconciliation with you, then thy will be done. An angel from heaven comes to provide strength and encouragement for him while he is in the flesh. Dr. Luke is the one that tells us about the hematidrosis. Three times, Christ will go and pray and come back to his disciples and find them asleep. And he'll return and pray again. He'll come back and find them asleep. And he'll go and he'll pray again. He'll come back, find them asleep. If it is possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. You understand that, right? You understand why he said that? That, that simply means that, that religions cannot reconcile us with the Lord. There is no religion man can come up with. If it doesn't matter in whom we believe, I mean, if Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, if all of them, if, if, if all of those are, are just like Christianity, if it doesn't matter what we believe, if it doesn't matter in whom we believe, then there's really no reason for Christ to go through this horrific experience. There's no reason for it. It's only because man's foolish religions can't satisfy God's holy character. Can't satisfy what his holy character demands in order for us to be reconciled. That's the whole reason he prays, thy will be done. You know, many often miss the significance of what causes this hematidrosis. 
I don't think that it's necessarily the fear of dying. I mean, the physical death that he's going to go through in this crucifixion is going to be horrific. I mean, truly horrific. But I don't know if that's what is going to cause the sweating of blood. And I don't think it's necessarily the public shame, even though that's horrific. I mean, they're going to put him on a cross in the busiest street of Jerusalem at the busiest time of the year where thousands will come by where he is being lifted up in shame all day for them to jeer at. As horrific as that is, that, that is not what I, I think causes the hematidosis. I don't think it's caused by the desertion of the, of the disciples. The fact that they all do scatter. He already knew that was going to happen. He told them it was going to happen. But it's the knowledge, the knowledge that he has of what it will take to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. He's going to sweat blood. And John doesn't record this because the humanity of Christ has already been documented in Luke's gospel. And Dr. Luke has already said, hey, this, this is what occurred. John is more concerned with our understanding of how Christ is masterfully controlling everything. I mean, that's why he records in chapter 13, it, it, was, it was just before Passover and Jesus knew his time had come. Many times he had said, my hour has not yet come. Now he says, it has come. So this is no meaningless tragedy that overtakes him. This is the fulfillment of promises the Lord made all the way back in Genesis 3 at the beginning of time in the first garden of Eden. When the Lord said, I will send one to deal with the serpent who is a liar and who has introduced sin and who has brought death. I will crush his head, but, but he will bruise my heel. The one the Lord sends, his heel will be bruised. The crucifixion is the bruising. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. He'd been there several times that week. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now he comes there with the Jewish officials. Uh, this is who has paid Judas 30 pieces of silver. Do you understand how much that is? It doesn't matter how much it is in today's dollars. It was the amount that you paid for a slave that was goaded by an ox, according to Exodus 21. So Judas will take these 30 pieces of silver. He will eventually go back and he'll throw the money at them in the temple. He'll be overwhelmed in sorrow for what he has done. And the authorities will gather up those 30 pieces. They won't keep it. They don't want it. This is blood money. And so they'll take it out and they will buy a field called a potter's field. And this is actually where Judas will end up going to hang himself. And the Lord does not cause Judas to do this. The Lord does not will for Judas to do this. And yet when Judas does it, the Lord is not shocked by it. He's not surprised. I mean, he foretold that this is what's going to happen. This is what the betrayer is going to do. He said that through Zechariah 500 years earlier. So Judas comes not only with Jewish officials from the Sanhedrin, but they come with a band of soldiers. These are Roman soldiers. These are our soldiers that have been brought to Jerusalem for this week of Passover to keep the peace. And the Greek noun here for it, spiterion, indicates this is a cohort of soldiers. Now what is a cohort? Well, it was about a thousand soldiers. Sometimes it could be as, as, as few as maybe 600. So I ask you in the questions that I sent out through the email this week as I was telling you to prepare your hearts for worship and to read through the text, and I ask you, why overkill? I mean, why are they going to bring 600, 800, 1,000 soldiers to arrest one guy? 
I mean, are they expecting Christ to rain down fire from heaven? I mean, he certainly could have done that. Are they expecting him to call down a legion of angels? Which was within his power and within his right. Or is it more that, that they're concerned about the, the Galileans there in Jerusalem? Remember, Christ is from Nazareth. Remember, most of his ministry was up north in Galilee because down south here in Judah, they've been plotting his death since John 5. And so all these Galileans have come in for Passover. The whole area is packed with tens of thousands of people. And they've already lined this road that goes over the Mount of Olives, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so even though it is deep into the night... Number one, they've got to find him. And the Mount of Olives is a, is a good-sized mount. And so they're going to, to scatter out and scour the place with torches and lanterns. And they're looking for this guy. And when they find him, they don't know what to expect. Will he surrender? He hasn't yet. They haven't been able to arrest him yet. And so is this why they've got a cohort of Roman soldiers? Because you have to keep in mind, listen, Rome has removed Israel's right to capital punishment. Israel could, the Sanhedrin could on occasion, they could stone someone like they tried to do the lady caught in the act of adultery in John 8. They could uh, stone people like they did Stephen in Acts 7. But in John 7, when they tried to arrest Christ earlier, when the temple guard came, the, the, the guard that was, that was to oversee the area there around the temple, when they came to arrest him, they came back and said, we couldn't do it. No man spoke like this man. No one has ever spoken with such authority. They tried to arrest him again in chapter 8. They couldn't do it. He slipped away. They tried to arrest him again in chapter 10. He escaped again because his hour had not yet come. The, the Sanhedrin needs help. They need an insider who will know where he's at in the middle of the night. They need the backing of the Roman government. And they need to act quickly. Because his popularity, according to Matthew 26, combined with his ability to heal, like the raising of Lazarus earlier, means that this is no ordinary man that we're trying to bring under our control. This is no ordinary man. That's why they have hundreds of soldiers searching all over the mount in the dark with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Christ comes here knowing that this is exactly where Judas will bring them to look for him. When he told Judas to get up, go do what you must do, he knew when Judas was going to go tell them he knew that this is the spot that Judas would come to. They had seen earlier that week Christ cleansing the temple. He'd run up thousands, thousands, turned over tables, gave them a tongue lashing for how they had treated a place of worship. And so they come with this cohort of Roman soldiers in addition to the temple police. And they're going to try to find him. And they're going to try to arrest him. And the Jewish authorities, these religious authorities, they need Rome. They need them to crucify him. And they've got a problem. They have a real problem because Rome won't do it. Just because Christ is the Messiah, they won't do it. That is the Jews' issue. That is not an issue for them. So they need to prove to Pontius Pilate that he's guilty of sedition. They've got to prove to him he incites people to riot against lawful governing authorities. They do have a problem, though. They have a major problem. There's no evidence. There's no evidence. <laughs> They tried to trap him earlier, and he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. By the time we get over to John 19, they will say, 
Look, he claims to be king of the Jews. He claims to be a king, Pilate, that is a threat to you, that is a threat to Rome. That's why they put above his head, when they nail him to a cross, king of the Jews. This is the accusation. We need to find him guilty of sedition. And it has to be done, according to law, it has to be done in two separate trials, two guilty verdicts, and they have to be a day there has to be a day in between the two trials. Oh, well, that's certainly a problem, isn't it? And these are rule keepers. Remember these guys? These are the guys who would strain out gnats. These are the guys who would nitpick about oaths. These are the guys who would count out their mint leaves for tithing. That's how meticulous they were about making sure that they tithe before the Lord. They would measure out how far you walked on the Sabbath. They get all over you if you just spit on the ground on the Sabbath. And then remember when Christ used that to heal the, the man's eyes? Oh, that's work. That's work on the Sabbath. These are rule keepers. And now the rule keepers... <laughs> The religious congress of that day, they're going to ignore their own rules of justice that states that you cannot try someone at night. They're going to have to ignore their own rules of justice, their own laws that say there has to be a day in between the two trials where he has to be found guilty. And the reason is, is because they have expanded, they've expanded what the Lord gave in the scriptures They've taken that law and they've expanded it for your benefit. These are laws you have to follow, not laws they have to follow. It's like politicians today who issue mandates about wearing masks. You've got to wear the mask, but they don't have to wear them when they go out to eat or when they go to ball games. Those are rules for you. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? I mean, you've got all of these guys scampering throughout the Mount of Olives. They're going through the garden looking for this one they think is going to try to avoid them. He's going to slip away like he always does. He's done it many times before his hour had come. So they don't know exactly what to expect. They don't know. They don't know that he's there on purpose they don't know that he plans to surrender to them on purpose they don't know that he is very much aware that they are going to arrest him and beat him and spit on him and blast him and crucify him and he's still going to voluntarily go through it he surrenders to them because he's in control of what is about to take place and notice that he asked them twice whom do you seek now, the first time they asked that is in verse 4. And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. That obscure town, in that despised region of Galilee. It was to separate him from any others in that day that might have been given the name Jesus. Now, this is a specific Jesus. It's the one from that area up there, Nazareth. Where nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's who we're seeking. And Jesus said, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them, John said. When Jesus said, I am, John says they all drew back and fell to the ground. And Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, um, <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. If you seek me, let these men go. Now, some of you are looking down in your Bibles and you're saying, wait, 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 wait. You're not reading all of the text, Wayne. You, you left out the word he. No, I didn't. The text left out the word he. The text simply says, ego, I, me. Ego I me, I am. See, when Moses, um, 
when the Lord comes to him and says, I, it's time for you to go deliver my people. Tell them, let my people go, all right? And Moses said, and who shall I say has sent me? They're going to want to know. I mean, they're going to want to know, who are you, Moses? Who sent you here to deliver these people? And he says, you tell them, I am who I am. When you translate that, you get this tetragrammaton, which is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. When you put the vowels in there, you get Jehovah. Now, Yahweh is a combination of three Hebrew words, Hayah, Yov, and Yaha, which translate, he was, he is, he shall be. The Latin term for that is a seity. I don't know if that's a new word for some of you. But it's A-S-E-I-T-Y. What does that mean? He was. He is. He shall be. He who was, is, and shall be is self-existing, self-sustaining, without change. He's eternally holy. He can't change. Yahweh. Now, in the New Testament, it is simply, I am. So Jesus asked, who do you want? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. Who do you seek to kill? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. See, make a note here that, listen, men, naturally, they do not hate religion. They don't, they don't hate Eastern mysticism. I mean, I think one of the, the largest religions on the face of the earth is like Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, man does not hate religion. Man loves religion. Matter of fact, he loves religion whereby he creates his own gods. He loves religions whereby he is the god. I mean, that's why the, the most popular religion here in America today is secularism. That says man is the one who is authoritative. And so men love religions. They don't hate them per se. Men love to worship themselves. Men love the gods that they create. Men love their philosophies. The only thing they hate is they hate the infinitely personal creator of the universe. And that's why when you leave men to themselves, like their father the devil, Christ said in John 8, they will hate the very notion that he has created them with purpose and with meaning. You know why? Why do they hate that? Because once they acknowledge that, they are now held accountable for their life and for their evil deeds. And so in man's natural condition, he is not going to bow a knee in submission to truth. You will not tell me, you will not tell me what I can and cannot do. You will not tell me what is right and what is wrong. I will determine that. I have determined that truth is relative. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. They all fall back. You know, if it's God's purpose... For Christ to make atonement for sinners at the cross, it doesn't take a cohort of Roman soldiers to make that happen. A little girl could have led him to the cross. It's not God's purpose. If this is not God's purpose, this cohort is certainly not enough. I mean, the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night back in the days of King Hezekiah. Remember that? To prohibit the fall of Judah when the northern kingdom falls. Sennacherib is going to come down. He's, going to, he's got Jerusalem surrounded. The next day he's going to come in and destroy them and take them over. He's going to have the north and the south. And King Hezekiah repents and gets rid of the idols in the land. And the Lord spares them by taking out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers with one angel in one night. This cohort is not enough. By his spoken word, all creation came into existence. By his spoken word, Israelites died in the wilderness. 
By his spoken word, Israel was taken into exile. The whole southern kingdom taken into exile in Babylon for 70 years. So by his spoken word, when Christ says, I am, by the authority of his word, those mortals are shaken. Same impact that the revealed glory of God had on Moses when he's on Mount Sinai. Remember, he says, can I see you, Lord? He said, no, you can't see me in that condition. You will be consumed. But he allows him to get a glimpse of his Shekinah glory. And that only had an impact on Moses. But when Moses comes down the mountain, the people have to shield their eyes from looking at Moses because he's been in the presence of the Lord. Same thing here. I am... I'm here. I've been waiting for you. You don't take my life. I lay it down. This is the Lord's triumph over sin, Satan, and death that comes as the result of the tragic choices that you men like Judas and you religious leaders and you governing authorities and you sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. The decisions you make and yet the Lord works through those. To accomplish his purposes. Now why does he ask them twice. Whom do you seek? He tells you why in verse 9. He said it's to fulfill the word he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me. I lost not one. I mean Christ had said back in chapter 6 verse 39. I will die for these guys. I'm going to go prepare a place for them. And if I prepare it I'll come again to receive them. That where I am there they will be also. And I'm not going to lose a single one of these guys. Not one. And the beginning of that salvific act is visually demonstrated right here in the garden. You're not going to touch a one of them. Why? Because I'm the one you're going to kill. And they are mine. They are mine. I haven't given you the authority to get them. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, Macarion, Drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name, by the way, was Malchus, John said. Why does he do that? Why does Peter do anything? I mean, he's just so, he's so emboldened by this awesome display of Christ's divine power. I am! And they all fall backwards, right? And Peter says, oh man, this is just fantastic. Whoosh! I mean, this is, uh, uh, it's, it's a large knife. It has a blade that's about 18 inches long, okay? Uh, some people would call it a short sword. We would probably refer to it as a dagger. It's not uncommon for a fisherman to carry that. It's not uncommon really for anybody to, to carry that because it was a weapon for protection. And so uh, Peter, who's probably used this in his fishing business, so he, he, man, he draws it out. He, he's ready to go. Come on. <laughs> they're on their heels. They're, they're the ones who are scared. I got them. I got them. Whoosh. He swings at the doulos, the, the servant of the high priest. Peter, you're so impulsive. He, he, he gets so caught up in the moment. You ever find yourself that way? I mean, he said he was willing to die for Christ. Now he's going to prove it. I mean, in his self-assurance, fueled by his pride, even though Christ has said that you're going to fall away, Peter said, that's just not true, Lord. Others might, but not me. I'm the rock. Isn't that the name you gave me back in Matthew 16? Peter, in his self-confidence, says, I'll get this one. You get the other 599. Just like you cleanse the temple, we're going to cleanse the garden. Let's, let's, let's start right now. It's exactly what the religious leaders and Roman soldiers had anticipated. Maybe that's why they brought this cohort of soldiers. The confidence that you have in yourself, Peter, is not going to work out very well, though. That's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to rely on me. And I told you, Peter, all the way up in Caesarea Philippi, I told you we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die, all right? I told you that. 
and I told you that I am going to send the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so you're not going to act until that happens. Now, one of the other Gospels tells us that Christ tells him, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, Peter. We are not going to return evil for evil. That's not the way we do spiritual warfare. And some have asked, well, why does John tell us the name of this servant Malchus? I, I don't know. He doesn't tell us why he tells us his name. Maybe it's because, I mean, John's writing this late in the first century. And, and maybe uh, this guy ends up being a member of the church that, that people who are reading this gospel would have recognized. Oh, yeah, we remember Malchus. I mean, Christ touches his ear and heals it instantaneously. And when that happens, I mean, that's a strong indication that this is no ordinary man. I'm sure that had a great impact on Malchus. One of the guys in our seminary asked one of the professors, you know, if Christ um, healed his old ear or if he created a new one for him. And our professor said, well, he doesn't tell us, but most likely he healed the old one. And the, the student asked, why do you think that? And he said, because if he had created a new one, someone would have gathered up the old one and built a church around it. Because that's what men do. They make things into relics for worship. And so Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Put it away, Peter. I know it appears that the high priest and these religious zealots who've been plotting my death for a couple of years now, are going to win. I know that's how it looks. I know it appears these Romans are blinded by the lies that they have been told. I know that's how it appears. It also appears that Judas is just an ignorant puppet of wickedness. I know it appears that evil is about to celebrate my death. But Peter, listen, the Lord is sovereign. And he has promised this from the beginning. He promised from the beginning, sin, Satan, and death will bruise the heel of the one that he will send. But sin, Satan, and death will also be crushed for eternity. And that's going to be for your good and for God's glory. Put it away, Peter. Put it away. You can't stop divine providence with a sword. 2,000 years earlier, this exact location, by the way, same mount. Abraham comes to the, comes to the top. It's, it's Mount Moriah. With him, he has his son of promise. And he lays him on an altar. He raises his knife to do what the Lord commanded him to do, to prove his faith. And the angel of Jehovah, you know who that is? You know who the angel of Jehovah is? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Christ who says this. Stop Stop. Take the blood of the innocent ram that's caught in the thicket of Palestinian thorns. He shall die that life might come to your descendants. That was me, Peter, who said that to Abraham. And it is me, Peter, who fulfills what that was to picture. That was just an Old Testament picture that is now unfolding before you. I am will drink from the cup of divine judgment, which, by the way, the Lord foretold throughout history in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, book of Numbers, book of Deuteronomy. He also gave it to us in the law. If you've ever read Leviticus, you read right there in chapter 17. There is life in the blood of the one who is without blemish. It's in the Psalms. Read Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 34, Psalm 49. It's throughout the prophets. You've got it in Isaiah 50. Very clearly in Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 32, Daniel 9, Micah 5. Zechariah 13 is throughout. 
Peter, what is about to take place is the fulfillment of all the feasts that the whole world watched and saw and witnessed through Israel for 1,500 years. This is the whole purpose for Passover. I am the Passover lamb. It's the fulfillment of all the promises the Lord gave over those thousands of years. It's the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that are fulfilled in me that the Lord gave over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. All going all the way back to the beginning of time. I mean, this is the purpose for my coming incarnate. What they're about to do is the most evil thing ever done in human history, to blaspheme, brutalize, and crucify one who is without sin. And yet the Lord, who is sovereign, will use what they do to defeat sin, Satan, and death for eternity. So shall I not drink this cup of wrath the Father has given me? Peter, do you not understand? Don't be taking matters into your own hands. Do what the Lord tells you to do. Don't do what you think ought to be done. I, I know, listen, we've all come from various religious backgrounds, religious upbringings. And so, you know, well, what I've always believed, what I've always thought, what I always heard, what my preacher used to say, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We are all united as one body, the body of Christ, under the authority of God's word. And so we don't do what we think. We do what he says. That's what you need to learn through this, Peter. Your view of life is very limited. The Lord's sovereignty is eternal. So this is not Peter's greatest moment. Swinging this sword at the servant of the high priest, trying to kill him. His greatest moment is yet to come. This impulsive Peter is going to be turned into a rock as he is going to firmly stand on the day of Pentecost and he's going to say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Where did you learn that, Peter? Learned it in the garden. The Holy Spirit has now come and filled me this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God whom you crucified, whom you killed by the hands of lawless men, the Lord raised, defeating death in fulfillment of all that he has promised. That's Peter's finest hour. And his finest hour is when he is no longer impulsively responding to the flesh, but the Holy Spirit has filled him. And what you see is the reverse of the curse at Babel. As men will now hear that gospel. They're there from all these various nations. And they all hear it in their own language. So what we see in this text is that Christ was committed to the cross. He confessed the truth about who he is. He was in control of all that was about to occur. And he faces the most brutal event in human history with compassion while he is staying focused on the covenant he was to fulfill to God's glory. So what are the lessons that we're to learn from this? Well, lesson number one is that God is sovereign. So let's not, as the body of Christ, do what we think is best. Let's do what he has said is right. Secondly, for those that are born again in Christ, his word is authoritative. His word is authoritative. It is not our opinions. Thirdly, let's don't get too bent out of shape over what we see occurring today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year, and in the future. Let's not get too bent out of shape over that. Why? Because the Lord is in control. He's in control. What we need to do is trust him. And you know what? I trust his word to be true when he says, I'll not lose a single one of you. Not one. You do what you're supposed to do while you're here on earth. And when it's time for you to come to be with me, I will come and receive you. 
that where I am, there you will be also. And your eternal life will continue throughout eternity. Whether you're here or you're there, does not matter. I'll not lose a single one of you. So don't back off when it comes to telling the truth about who he is. We have no authority to compromise truth. And yet as we share that truth, we always do it with the same compassion that Christ had. And so I got to thinking as I was reading through this this week, if Christ is willing to come in the flesh and live the life we could not live, one without sin, and then die a death we could not die, I mean, he can satisfy the just wrath of God because he's God. And he is also, he can make atonement for men because he's a man without sin. We can't do that. That's why hell is for eternity. We cannot satisfy that. And so if he can make a commitment to come and do that, can we make a commitment to worship him and serve him and love him and do what he has called us to do and be what he's called us to be to the glory of his name? Can we be found faithful in doing that? He was faithful. He was faithful to go all the way to the cross. Do you have any questions? There'll be someone at the connect table to be glad to answer them. I'll be glad to help you. It really actually any of our members would be. So any of you who are visiting with us today, if you have some questions, feel free to seek us out. God bless you. Stand as we pray. Lord, for any here today who have never embraced Christ as their Savior and Lord, Father, I just pray that they would no longer resist that truth. Reveal to them, Lord, that they are going to either spend eternity in the presence of Christ their Savior or eternity with guys like Judas. As horrific as that thought is. Thank you for revealing to us the truth through John. The truth about the, the commitment that Christ had to secure our salvation. Fulfilling how you brought about an eternal triumph through the most horrific tragedy of man's existence. Thank you, Lord, for recording this for us. You have spoken to us through your word. May we now have that word reside within us as we share it with those who are currently lost in darkness. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.